We need to be confident in ourselves and in our power. And when the bully attacks us and, and is clear is not going to stop, we have to be to summon the strength to show that bully that he shouldn't fight with the bear. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last five months, there hasn't been a story that has impacted the world or the fight to preserve democracy, really, more than the Russian invasion and continued war in Ukraine. And so much of our media attention has shifted back to the domestic front recently, covering inflation, the January 6th committee hearings, the earthquake at the Supreme Court, and the run-up to the midterm elections. But the war in Ukraine has shifted over the last several months, and its impact has rippled through the rest of the world. And it's difficult to overstate the stakes of this war. Jason Farago, writing for The New York Times, put it this way, The true culture war of our age is the war for democracy, and Ukrainian culture, past and present, has become a vital line of defense for the whole liberal order. So I wanted to spend some time talking about the current state of the war, how it's impacting the U.S. and countries across the globe, get a better sense of where this fight might be headed. That's why I wanted to talk to John Seifer. John spent 28 years in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. During his time at the CIA, he served multiple tours as Chief of Station and Deputy Chief of Station in Europe, Asia, and in high-threat environments. He ran the CIA's Russia operations at headquarters and was also a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, which is the leadership team that guides CIA activities globally. He's also a co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, which is a production company that makes espionage shows and films. John, welcome back to Politicology, and thank you for making some time today. It's great to talk to you again. Glad to help. So in April, President Zelensky announced that Russia has shifted their focus from Kyiv to eastern Ukraine and the Donbas region. Can you talk about how the fighting has changed since Russia made that move and how we need to be thinking about Russian influence in the Donbas? Yeah, I'd be glad to. And I think, you know, but as we get into sort of the details of that, I, yeah. I want to stop and, and for a second and talk about the significance of that change, because I think it's bigger than most people agree. Now, we see that the Russians now seem to be having some advantage and they seem to be you know, killing a lot of Ukrainians and having some success. But we need to really look at what happened. The fact that Vladimir Putin had to back down from his initial plans, that his desire to essentially destroy and take over Ukraine and, and kill the leadership uh, is, is quite a significant thing. Um, in, the, in the mindset of somebody like Vladimir Putin, an autocrat, a dictator, who has this culture of the street gang bully uh, which is about dominance and contempt for the weak and about your your reputation is everything and, and loss of reputation is shame. You know, he played the role on the world stage of a, of the strong man who gets what he wants, who sort of play, and he's lost that. And so, yes, we're moving to a point now. And, and as we focus on the details, there's a lot of things that are troubling, uh, but an independent Ukraine will continue. You know, it wasn't clear when this first started that we that Ukraine would be able to weather these attacks, that you, Russia and Vladimir Putin's plans to take over Ukraine and change the leadership and make it a vassal of Russia. Those things won't happen. You know, for years from now, uh, Ukrainian school children are probably learning about the sort of historic fight against Russian invasion and attempts to murder their nation. And the, and the, 
the point will be that Russia failed and that Vladimir Putin, the strong, turned out to be weaker. And so we need to not forget that this is a weaker Vladimir Putin, no matter how much you know day-to-day success is happening on the battlefield. Um, his strongman mentality has been punctured, and that's an incredibly important thing for us to remember moving forward. That's a really important level set. Thank you. So yes, it has changed. You know, I, you know, we know in the in the early days they tried to seize Kiev. They tried to, on multiple fronts, you know, go in to take the leadership of of Ukraine. And now they're sort of gone back to the places that they had invaded in 2014, the eastern provinces of, of, of the Donbas of, of Luhansk, and they've tried to then reset and use their advantages, which are you know large military, artillery, armor strikes against Ukraine. In other words, Ukraine was able to use asymmetric means, you know, sort of special forces to take strikes against long columns trying to invade um, uh, Kiev and these places and and, and had quite a bit of success. And so uh, Russia was humbled and now they're doing, you know, they're trying to take advantage of their strengths, which is the fact that they're a massive country with a massive army and they don't mind letting their citizens and their soldiers be killed. And so they're in a process of using sort of mass firepower to, you know, to take land slowly in the east. But they're also trying to, uh, you know, betting that the West will grow bored with this and therefore they will then have the time to slowly destroy Ukraine and maybe make Ukraine uninvestable, crippled, weak. And so I think that's what's become, you know, the the Kremlin's playbook now. But again, don't forget it. That's not the original plan. Not the original plan. But let's talk about that bet, though, for a moment. It seems reasonable to expect the West to get bored and for attention to wane and for the Americans to move on to other topics that are, you know, at the top of the newspaper. And we have talked on the show a lot about the lack of appetite for American involvement abroad in any capacity, really, on both sort of fringes of the political spectrum. But that attitude has grown in recent years. Can you, can you talk about the degree to which that might work for Putin? Yeah, well, th- you know, this, this war is in Vladimir Putin's neighborhood. It's something he's been obsessed with for years. And in, fr- in fact, even before Putin, this has always been part of the, the Russian psyche that they needed to, to grow and they had to be an empire, an imperial group that, that, that subjugated or at least controlled it, its neighbors. And so to them, this is, you know, center of mind. For the West, Ukraine obviously is not something that, you know, we thought about from day to day. And so you know, when, I, when I talk about Vladimir Putin, there's a, there's a couple things that help define him. One was his KGB career. So the things we've seen recently, you know, the use of subversion and disinformation and deception and asymmetric tools to try to undermine his enemies from inside, these things are important here in the mentality is, is I, I think, you know, he was a KGB officer. He thinks that people can be bought. He has seen Westerners, Americans, and others agree to work for the KGB, to spy, to undermine their own government. And so he's got this mindset that, you know, Westerners can be bought off. They're weak. They're not strong-willed like he is and, and Russians are. And he also has separately that sort of, I said, bully street gang mentality that, you know, hey, 
I can, I, you know, I'm the tough guy. I'm going to do everything I, I can to assert my dominance and make clear that, you know, I'm strong, you're weak. And as an autocrat, that's the other thing. He doesn't have to worry as much about, you know, the opinion of his people. He doesn't have to worry about elections. He doesn't have to worry about trying to appeal to them. He can allow their economy to be, you know, destroyed, frankly, and still continue to put put men into the field. And so it's not an irrational view that he believes that he can use information warfare and time to, to get the West to sort of you know, start to look away and therefore he, he can start to achieve his, his goals. Okay, so let's talk then about the attention that the West does need to be paying to the war and what we need to be doing to support Ukraine, especially as that attention has waned. So when Russia launched their offensive earlier this year, Ukraine picked up some key early victories. You've mentioned how uh, how uh, how significant the change is that that Ukraine will exist, right? Ukraine, we now know Ukraine has has won at least a part of this war. Um, but can you talk about how they've fared compared to what we would have expected to see, and then help us understand the differences in military power now between Russia and Ukraine as the fighting has shifted to a long term war? You know. How how does that impact the way Ukraine needs to fight and the weapons that it needs and the supplies that the West needs to be sending? And how can we reset our expectations for the resources that they're going to need to stay alive? Well, some of this is going to be Western leaders, you know, the, the U.S. administration and Western leaders, you know, making it clear to their publics that uh, backing off from supporting Ukraine is not a winning proposition in the long run. So one of the things we learned about Vladimir Putin, in fact, was part of the problem. What led to this war is, is, you know, he was someone who was always willing to upset the status quo. And we in the West were willing to compromise to maintain the status quo. And with someone who's willing to upset the status quo, at some point, you realize that, you know, making concessions or trying to negotiate with them never works because they're never satisfied and they, and they keep going. Now, have we learned the lesson that Vladimir Putin is, is not going to stop until he is stopped or, or, or not? Because what's happening now is, you know, we've seen as a KGB officer, this weaponization of information and disinformation and, and subversion. But he also, for a long time, and has not weaponized oil. He's weaponized food. He's weaponized, you know, refugees. You know, he knows that refugee flows into Europe cause, cause great problems. He knows that his war is causing inflation and, and financial a stress on on the West and on Germany and, and other countries. The food crisis, which is hitting you know North Africa and Asia and these things, are things that he understands is causing great pressure on the West, and therefore that's something that he believes again time is in his favor for these kind of things. So um, again, it's, it's not irrational he thinks that, but the Western leader is going to have to make a case that you know by backing off or trying to negotiate or to give concessions to Vladimir Putin is a losing proposition because he will continue to push. You know, he has made no indication that he's willing to uh, negotiate with Ukraine, that he's will, that his goals are, have changed in any strategic way. He, you know, he, it's going to take him longer to try to destroy the Ukrainian state, but it doesn't, it's not clear that he's backing off from that view. Okay, we ought to talk about the territory that he has captured so far and the geographic significance of it, because my sense is that even if the war were to end tomorrow and and everything Ukraine controls, they keep, that Putin is still one of significant victory in some respect. 
can you talk about the territory that they currently occupy and 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 then we'll and then and then we'll dig into the sort of the slowing down of uh, of supplies that seems to have happened in some some of the Western European countries. So um, you know the one thing to remember is he invaded, you know he took over Crimea and invaded Eastern Ukraine in, in 2014. So this war has been going on for quite a long time, and he had a, a significant portion of these eastern provinces in what's called the Donbas region. Uh, but of course, that region has was been very important historically to Ukraine. I mean, in fact, the Nazis in World War II wanted portions of Ukraine because it's sort of the breadbasket of Europe and you know, massive fields and grain and, and things. And I th- so, so yes, I think um, Vladimir Putin now has, has has used his military to destroy uh, the front and take th- these places. It is politically and militarily important, but it's not radically so because he was essentially in these. It, mostly in these areas, mostly in these areas uh, before. And the Ukrainians, you know, again, the fact that they, you know, had a, uh, an army that was had been trained by the West to sort of be this, you know, special forces, fast moving, uh, asymmetric attack from behind force was very effective in the, in the first part of the war. Now that the war has moved into this sort of massive army artillery battle, the Ukrainians are less, uh, you know, capable of, hitting, you know, in artillery strike by artillery strike. You know, the, the, it's reported that Russians are shooting 50 to 60,000 shells a day in, in the eastern part of Ukraine. The Ukrainians can do nothing but sort of hunker down, try to go underground and, and hope to survive that so they can get to in a position where they can actually fight like they were fighting before, you know, up close and personal with, with the Russians and Russian armor and Russian tanks. So, the, so, you know, one of the things that they've been asking for for a long time is you know, modern weapons. They've asked, you know, very, very strongly for, for fighter jets and, and bombers and jets, which they have not gotten. But they've also pushed for, you know, Western artillery systems, which they're starting to get and starting to have quite success using them. But again, you know, there, there's what we're talking, you know, handfuls of these kind of systems, which take a long time to train on and prepare and deploy to the field. But the Ukrainians are showing that, you know, they're quick learners and they're, you know, they're bloodying the Russians. And so, you know, there is a narrative the Russians are having quite a bit of success. Uh, they're using their strength, you know, to take and control some of these areas. But again, in the overall scheme of things, what we would have expected from a massive army, from a massive continental-sized country would have been a lot more from the Russians. You know, we see that they're using old weapons, they're using old bombs, they're using, you know, surface-to-air missiles as essentially missiles just to shoot randomly into Ukraine and are hitting cities and schools and hospitals and all kinds all kinds of things. You know, the fact that, you know, the, the small number of effective Ukrainian artillery, you know, in, in modern warfare, you can imagine if the United States was in this fight and it was in Iraq or one of these, our Air Force would be decimating those things. If there, you know, if there was only like six or seven key artillery pieces, those would be gone within minutes. How is it possible that this massive country with one of the world's largest armies and a nuclear state can't have its air force even hit an artillery piece? So, so I don't want to overstate the success of the Russians. You know, I think they're losing a lot of people. They're, they're, they're using up a lot of their arms. They're showing themselves, again, on the bigger stage for someone who you know, wanted to portray himself as a strong man, that there's a lot more weakness there. But day to day, you're right. It's causing a lot of pain to Ukrainians. They don't have that sort of massive army that can hit, you know, blow to blow with the Russians. And it's causing, you know, great pain right now. 
can you also talk bef- uh, a little bit about the people who the Russians are using uh, as as soldiers in the war? You you mentioned they're not ethnically Russian. Mo- many of them are not ethnically Russian. Yeah, this is really interesting, and I think it does show. You know, dictators you know fear their people, and you know they need to use repression and disinformation and propaganda and things to sort of maintain you know things at home because they have no means of of, of really gauging public opinion because they don't have elections, they don't have the kind of things that we have in the West. And so, you know, one of the things that we've noticed that, you know, from what I've seen of the information and data that we've gotten on the Russian dead, it's overwhelmingly non-Russians, ethnic Dagestanis and Udmurts and and Chechens and a a variety of things. And, you know, there's some stories out there that, you know, Putin is very afraid of having sort of ethnic Russians from Moscow, from large urban areas in St. Petersburg and others, you know, that that would cause him potential political damage if, you know, lots of body bags were coming home to Moscow. But but instead, Mm. they're coming home to these sort of poor ethnic areas, which these people were sort of bribed into joining the army and the military because it's, you know, life is really poor and hard in some of those places. And, And so there's less political blowback if, you know, lots of Dagestanis die. And so, but I think that's something to keep in mind. That's, that suggests you know, a fear or a weakness of, of Vladimir Putin. Okay. So back to supplies and, uh, weapons, there's, uh, according to some of the stuff I've read, uh, in the times lately, there is a theory anyway, I don't know that anyone has substantiated this, but that some of the Western countries, especially Western European countries have sort of slow rolled their supplies to Ukraine or have slowed down supplies. And, the thinking is that if they do this, first of all, they're they're you know concerned about depleting their own stores. That's understandable, but that it might actually bring about a faster end to the war because it will speed up negotiations. And I want to hear from you on whether you think that has any credibility, and if so, the the the, the legitimacy of of thinking that way. Um, both from a real politic standpoint on behalf of these countries, but also with the bigger picture in mind. So in this case, I think sort of two things are, are true and there's, there's a constant sort of friction between them. So I do think the West and NATO has sort of hung together stronger than we might've expected prior to the, the war. Yeah. You know, NATO was, you know, people like Macron in France were talking sort of about the end of NATO and the weakness. There was very few American soldiers left on continental Europe, you know, in the lead up to this war, uh, it was hard to see what was the role for for NATO. And now it's it's really come around quite a bit. So much so that places like Sweden and Finland, you know, are asking to join NATO. Uh, places like Germany are starting to invest in their military. Um, a lot of countries are providing support, help for refugees, financial support, military support. So the fact um, I think Vladimir Putin was probably very very surprised his his view based on a lot of inputs that look at the January 6th thing in the United States, look at what happened in Afghanistan, you know, look at, you know, he's been essentially using dirty money to suborn, uh, you know, politicians in Germany and these places for years that he thought the West and NATO would be much weaker. It's turned out to be much more resilient, much more focused and much more supportive of Ukraine than he would have guessed. That said, you know, when we're talking about a, you know, a small amount here of, of of what Ukraine needs, there is a there is a distinction. It is clear that some of these places are not providing the kind of support it would take for Ukraine to actually win. And 
the the dynamic that you talk about, we've seen it. We've seen we've seen Macron in France, who's who's negotiating and talking to Putin, say it openly that hey, the point here is negotiations, and perhaps some of our policies are are making going to make it harder to negotiate. If we humiliate Putin, it's going to be make it harder to move forward. And of course, there's been a lot of pushback on that, and Macron has you know tried to deflect some of that criticism. But it is in fact clear that the Germans and the French and some others are doing less than they, they should be. Uh, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk about sort of longer term strengthening, uh, you know, their militaries. There's, you know, they've come together on sanctions, but sanctions are a long, a long term process. It's not something that happens quickly to squeeze, uh, you know, a dictatorship like what's happening in Russia now. And so, yeah, it's clear that they are not, you know, that th- that view that you say is, something that we have to really keep an eye out for. Um, the British and the Americans and NATO countries in the East, Poland, the Baltic countries, uh, Romania, a number of those countries have been pushing back against this and trying to say we need to do more, not not less, because, you know, uh, a, an empowered Vladimir Putin is just, a, is just a continual problem for the West. Yeah, there's a there's a German foreign policy analyst, uh, Ulrich Speck, who put it this way, he told the Times the West is providing Ukraine just enough weaponry to survive, not enough to regain territory. The idea seems to be that Russia should not win, but also not lose. And this sort of wanting to have it both ways, kind of sort of tiptoeing around him because of what he might do, seems to have infected a lot of foreign policy thinking in the United States. I see it all over Twitter, uh, especially among the Cold Warrior set and, uh, and you know, people who have had, who have had long tenured careers uh, in, in the foreign policy establishment. And so I wonder, you know, what do you think about the U.S. specifically in our posture towards Ukraine? What we're supplying the 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 foreign policy apparatus around Biden and um, and and you know to 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 tack on a a thread to that the domestic political uh, challenges right that that obviously are driving some of that. A lot of, a lot to unpack there, and I think I yeah. you know the very very serious points. I, one of the things, and, and I think that we have to keep in mind here is essentially a lot of this war came on in many ways because we failed to push back against Vladimir Putin in the past. You can argue he's been at war with us in the West for 10 years. He's gone into Georgia, he's gone into Moldova, he's gone into Crimea and took Eastern Ukraine. He's tried to mess in our elections. They've assassinated people around Europe. They've bombed against our allies in, in, in Syria. They've you know, tried to give money to you know Taliban to go after American this is a nonstop war against the West. And instead of pushing back or seeing it as such, we've continued just hope for the best, hope he'll come around, give some concessions, think that maybe that'll solve it. Now, it's very clear that it didn't. It essentially, it empowered him. It made him think the West was weak, the West could be bought, that, you know, he was in a position of power. And so the thing is, you know, we cannot allow that same thinking to happen again here. If think is, well, we don't want to humiliate Putin. We want to give him an off ramp. We want to, you know, some concessions here, you know, Ukrainians should, should sort of, you know, give in, you know, of course, this is the kind of thing that if you, if, if your own country was under attack, it would be quite, it would be, it would be something that would make you quite angry to hear outsiders say what you should be doing in terms of giving up your land or your people or allowing 
you know, murderers who are trying to destroy your country and kill women and children, uh, that you should sort of accommodate them or give in to them. So it's very frustrating, but it is it is having some effect. There's this, you know, there's worry that what is this? What's the long term prospect? Can we weather inflation and oil prices? Uh, you know, what is it? What is the effect on, on China? Uh, I, you know, there are a lot of people who just hope that that there's some sort of a negotiated settlement which will make it go away. And this is a very Western thing. We tend to, you know, we want to just hope for the best, want things to go away. You know, let's let's push this dirty food to the back of the refrigerator and hope for the best. Now, you know, we've seen that that barely works, <laughs> that eventually, you know, they infect other things in the back of the refrigerator. And so, you know, we've seen it even in some of, of uh, Biden's discussions recently. You know, our goal is to make sure that Ukrainians don't lose. Well, that's different than, you know, making sure that you, that, Putin loses or the Ukrainians win. And so yeah, I think there needs to be, you know, sort of a administration needs to sell to the public that this is a lot bigger than just what's happening in Eastern Ukraine. This is affecting the world's economy, the world's politics, and it's empowering a dictator that's willing to overturn the apple cart of sort of modernity and the status quo, which, which essentially, if we don't deal with it now, is going to continue to cause us problems for, for years to come. It also seems to betray a thinking that he's a guy who follows the rules, that if you do negotiate a settlement, that he'll honor the terms of that settlement, whether, you know, for, for, for the for the foreseeable future. And I think if you recognize how this man operates, you can immediately see that that isn't the case at all. Uh, so it really sort of drives you down to first principles on the on the person that you're dealing with. No, exactly. Um, he'll, he'll never be satisfied. Right. If you compromise with him, that's just a sign of weakness that he can then take advantage of and push for more. And, and Ukrainians understand that. They say if 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 we just find a way to sort of you know stop the fighting for now, he is just going to look for another opportunity to take more to you know re-strengthen, re-energize himself, and, and and take more. All of our friendly gestures over the last, you know, 15 years with this man has made him think that that we're weak and he's taken advantage of them. He's never negotiated hoping to get something that he's satisfied with. And so your, your point is well taken. So when I traveled, actually, you know, it does seem to me, we've talked about this before on the show, that there's this enormous political opportunity for Biden to do exactly what you just said. To, to, you know, and okay, he's not the grand orator that it might take to pull something like this off, but to rally Americans around the global consequences of the outcome of this war, as you just said, seems like he could, politically speaking, reposition the entire narrative of the midterms uh, and sort of level up the conversation to, uh, to, to something far more significant. Um, but I don't, I don't, I just don't think he's up to that task and, or I don't think he sees the world that way, or he doesn't see, you know, um, maybe he doesn't see the opportunity. I don't know. I think the assessment is by a lot of people, and it's understandable that Americans are tired, that, you know, this is all in the context of 20 years of war in Afghanistan, of the war in Iraq, not going the way we want of, you know, even trying to get out of these wars has caused pain and weakness. And so there's sort of this, you know, and then you're, put on top of that economic pain, all these other kind of things. You know, if you look in American history, there's been times where we, we wanted to look inwards. We didn't want to be part of the world. And, but the, in the 21st century, you know, it doesn't work that way. Everything that happens in the world, this globalization, you know, China, 
world markets. You know, the, the United States still has an incredible power and role in the world. And we need to make our, somehow make our citizens understand that and understand the benefit that comes from that. The fact that we're able to get such cheap products that come to our doors immediately, you know, and, and can, all these kind of things it is a benefit of U.S. power, both soft power, economic power, military power, relationships around the world, um, to move back to an almost early 20th century or in Putin's mind, almost 19th century sort of view of everybody being in turmoil, it's going to change the, our lives for the worse. It's going to be much harder. Food prices are going to, we're not going to have this sort of variety that we have. Things are going to be more expensive. You know, there's, there's weakness. You know, if we don't engage with the world, uh, others will take advantage. The Chinese would love to, to sort of supplant us and, and, and create a world where they and the Russians in a no rules world benefit from. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think uh, he's not alone. Biden's not alone in Americans, you know, politicians, you know, failing to explain to Americans the importance of our role in the world and why things matter. You know, everything gets turned into like, you know, well, how much is how much is gas at the pump? Rather than saying, hey, you know, <laughs> our role around the world has been incredibly valuable for us. We would not be living the kind of lifestyle that we live now if we didn't invest in the things that we do. And so I think Americans are tired and, you know, our, our, our efforts in the past to sort of reset relations with Russia and all these other kind of things have, have, have been a, a, has been a failure. So there's a, it's an understandable, just personal emotion that I don't want any more of this, but by not wanting any more or not playing, the loss is going to be much more significant for us over the long term. Yeah. And psychologically, we may not, as a as a people, right? Culture may not recognize the value of what you just described, America, American leadership on the world stage, until it's gone and until the effects are felt acutely at home. And I fear that's where we might be headed. Um, you mentioned earlier um, using food as a weapon, Vladimir Putin using food as a weapon. So when I traveled to Ukraine earlier this year with our mutual friend Molly uh, and Mike. Uh, one of the big things I took away was that from that was, was was learning about the Holodomir, which Molly explained to us on a very very long train ride from Lviv to <laughs> Kiev, and uh, and it was I mean th- that that conversation will stick with me forever because looking out the window at the fields uh, at old women plowing their little plot of ground with a wooden stick as Molly is telling us the story of the Holodomir was sort of transporting in a way it's difficult to describe. So I want to give our listeners an explanation of, of what that is, what it was and the significance of Ukrainian culture. And, and then I would like to spend a few minutes talking about how we're seeing hunger used as a weapon of this war and the global consequences that are going to ensue later this summer if we don't address it. Can you can you first walk through, um, you know, the significance of the Holodomir? What was it? And yeah, uh, um, yeah. you know, this is something that Ukrainians understand in their souls because their, they, you know, their ancestors and their grandparents and people lived through it, or many of them, most of them you know, died. People in every family have had people who died from this. So essentially, when Stalin was trying to sort of, you know, you know push communism into the parts of the, of the Soviet Union. Uh, the, again, Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, incredible uh, production of grain and, and great growing season. And he tried to uh, you know, use collective farms and all these type of things and, and, and essentially pressured Ukraine to, to 
private farms and destroyed them in an effort to try to gain political control by using sort of, you know, the methods of, of communism and, and, and collectivism to, and, and in the process, we're talking millions and millions of people died. Starvation, you know, so horrible that every every small town and city had just piles of, of dead bodies. I think, I remember there was a movie recently, Mr. Jones or something, have you seen that? That talks about sort of, there was an American uh, journalist who ended up traveling through Ukraine during this time that shows scenes of, of really of dead bodies and stuff. Anne Applebaum has written some books and Tim, Snyder, and Tim Snyder about the yeah. about this great family. So, so Ukrainians understand both how, you know, the, the coldness of Russian tyrants in the past and, the, you know, the use of, of food as a weapon, you know, killed millions and millions. And so they understand, you know, what's happening here. And the fact is that Vladimir Putin is, is using this again. They've, you know, they've stopped grain shipments from the ports in the Black Sea. Uh, they understand and we're seeing, you know, some of these countries and, and societies in North Africa and other places were just on the verge, you know, just barely making it or now, you know, at risk of actual starvation. Uh, prices are going up. So even if there is food that, you know, poor people can't, can't get to it, which creates then refugee flows and, and political uh, upheavals in a variety of countries. You know, you see what's happening in Sri Lanka, the, you know, the, the economic troubles, you know, are, are partially tied to this kind of thing. And so, again, Vladimir Putin, you know, in many ways, there's a lot of articles about it. I don't want to be, make it a clear one for one is, you know, has that mentality of, of Stalin that essentially, if, you know, I can inflict upon the world great damage and death and destruction, it can benefit me at home politically. And so, yeah, it's a sad, sad case. And it's another reason why I think our leaders have to explain that this, again, is not, it's not just oil at the pump and it's not just, you know, Ukrainians are great Democrats and we have to support them. You know, we're going to see societies, you know, crumble and, and fall apart, which is going to create violence, which is going to create terrorism, which is going to create you know, financial flows that we haven't seen, and it's going to be taken advantage of by Russians and Chinese and others. I think it's also worth really underscoring the point that Putin is intending to inflict as much suffering around the world outside of Ukraine in an effort to pressure Ukrainian allies, Ukraine's allies, to relent, right? That's ultimately the the play here. So this, you know, one of the stories we've been following is the grain crisis, and um, you know, for context, Russian Ukraine produce about a third of the wheat traded in global markets. Um, United Nations has estimated the war could push the number of people facing acute food insecurity to forty seven million people this year. And from what I understand, Ukraine produces about forty percent of the UN's food program, the grain that is supplied to the UN's food program, the UN food program feeds Africa, literally feeds Africa. And that grain can't get out of the country because Putin is, because, because of the war, right? They, they can't get the grain out of the, out of the country because the rail lines and like, there's all these kinds of logistical problems. They can't get out of the port, most importantly, of Odessa. And, and we've even seen the, the Russians are even just are, are shelling and burning fields to, as, yeah. not just at the ports. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so help us understand, help us under, listeners understand the connection between the trade of food and essential goods and global security. Ultimately, how do we connect the dots uh, and, and 
and hopefully cut him off at the pass here because it seems to me like we got until the end of summer before the grain rots that Ukraine can't get out of its uh, out of its country to feed the world. This goes back to the thing we talked about at the very beginning. His goal is to make sure that any countries that are supporting Ukraine uh, grow bored or believe that there's so much pain that they have to relent. And what his actions are, this is conscious action on the behalf of Vladimir Putin to weaponize. He's done in the past, you know, we were used to him weaponizing oil and weaponizing information and disinformation, but he's also willing to weaponize, you know, food, starvation, you know, refugee flows to his benefit. We saw it again earlier with Syria. Yeah. They, as part of the United Nations, they've tried to stop even uh, humanitarian uh, roads into Syria to help you know, the people who they consider enemies. So they'd rather have the starvation and refugee flows into Europe, which creates chaos and instability in Europe. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a world leader who's willing to use, you know, chaos and death on the world stage to, to achieve his goals. This is not someone who can be accommodated or can be, you know, negotiate, you can negotiate with. And so, yes, your point is a good one. This is a conscious effort and it's part of the effort of, you know, it, it's, it's using oil to convince the Germans that it's not, you know their economy is is suffering because of this. You might as well back off and deal with us. It's about, you know, telling European countries in the south of Europe that hey, all of these refugee flows from North Africa are just going to get worse. You might as well, you know, do you care that much about Ukraine? Let's go away from it. It's about, you know, you know, convincing sort of the, the Chinese and others that you know the things that they're seeing that they have to now support are worth doing. So these are conscious efforts by Vladimir Putin, and it's really, it's quite ugly. And the war is not just in Ukraine. Well, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, no, that's no, the no, takeaway. Exactly the right. war is not just in Ukraine, right? And, I mean, you know, frankly, it, it doesn't work domestically, politically. So essentially, somebody like Biden will say, hey, you know, the, the fact that our gas prices are high are because of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And then the Republicans use that against him to sort of say, oh, this is, you're blaming it. It's not something to sort of attack him. But, it, you know, it's it's true. Now, of course, you know, most Americans aren't paying attention to these things. And so all they care about is the price. They don't, you know, they, it's, it's hard to say, well, you know, gas prices are high everywhere. And maybe if we, you know, maybe it'll take some time and some heartache, but there, there, there's bigger pain to be had if we don't deal with Vladimir Putin now. So, you know, I, it's, it's a difficult political conundrum, but it, it needs to be faced or things just get worse. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned Ann Applebaum earlier. She had a piece out in The Atlantic uh, earlier this week. She writes about Russia using imprecise KH-22 bombs on a town with no strategic assets. It was a deliberate attack on civilians and would constitute a war crime. And it's now a nearly daily occurrence in Ukraine. Um, she argues these bombings are terrorism. She lays out the U.S. criminal code that terrorist acts are violent acts with one, one of these goals. One, to intimidate or coerce a civilian population. Two, to influence the policies of a government by intimidation or coercion. Or three, to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. And we're seeing attacks on shopping malls. Uh, they're using uh, cluster munitions in residential areas uh, of Kharkiv. They're using rockets to attack apartment buildings. I, one of our drivers in Ukraine showed me a video 
of a rocket hitting an apartment building right next to his, literally right, right next to his. And he said, everybody's okay. It wasn't our building, but like to see it up close, this is, this is, I don't know how, how else to, to, to think of this if it's not terrorism. And so I, I wonder, I wonder what you think from a, um, you know, from a, from a military stand, from a strategic standpoint, is it useful to talk about Russia's actions as terrorism? Does it change the conversation? Does it have any implications for the way we support Ukraine or hold Russia accountable? Um, and, and, you know, how does what we're seeing there in Ukraine compare to other wars we've seen in the last century? Well, you know, it's hard for me to say it better than Ann Applebaum has said, and I think it's absolutely true. And frankly, we, we, we looked away when they used these same things in Syria. They used terror as a weapon. They hit hospitals on purpose. They hit hospitals after first responders came to, to work on things. You know, again, their goal is to create so much fear, chaos, and trouble that they, they want to intimidate. It goes back to that. You know, Vladimir Putin, there's a number of sort of comments over time that he has made uh, about it gives a sense of his mentality that he's, you know, he grew up on the streets of Leningrad and he talked about, he's got a famous thing in his book about how in his, in his apartment building, he cornered a rat one time and he talks about the rat and, and, you know, pushing the rat in the corner and the rat essentially then attacked him. And he was, you know, that was a le- lesson to me that, you know, if you're, if, if there's going to be a fight, you need to strike first, you know, you must assert mm. dominance. There's a contempt for the weak, you know, after the, the Beslan terrorist attack in Moscow, you know, that his famous quote was, you know, we demonstrated weakness and the weak are beaten. Um, so, you know, this is a constant theme with him. Again, it's almost the theme of a street tough, a gangster, yeah. a bully um, that, you know, and showing any weakness is, is it's about do- dominance. The discussion, the political uh, language he uses is, is not, is the, not the language of dignity. It's a language of honor. Like, you know, uh, you know, it's about being strong and being respected. And, you know, you can be respected because you're the strongest, not because you're the, the best. Or, right. Um, and so they, they acted this way, certainly in Syria, and we're seeing it in Ukraine. So I think it, it has two purposes. It has the same purpose that we talked about earlier, is to convince Westerners who are willing to go a little more weak at the knees that, oh, this is just so terrible, it needs to be stopped under any circumstances. Doesn't care whether you know, Putin sees himself as the winner, it still needs to be stopped. And it's also to terrorize Ukrainians. Now, to their credit, they understand that, you know, for them, stopping fighting means you're ending Ukraine. Yeah. For Russians, stopping fighting means the war ends. And so we just need to keep that in, in mind that, you know, just stopping fighting doesn't, <laughs> doesn't achieve any of the goals that we want to achieve. So yes, I believe this is terror and it's being done on purpose. There's supposed to be a, again, a first world military. It's been reformed and, and they're instead they're using, you know, essentially weapons of mass destruction yeah. in terms of just hitting on purpose. Yeah. Civilian areas and killing yeah. civilians. Given that they are a pretty major world player still, and and they have a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, and they're engaging in these tactics. Do we need to update our concepts of global security? And and if so, and if so, how? <laughs> it almost reminds me of the domestic discussion about up, updating the electoral college. Like uh, you know, 
presidents keep winning with less than majority votes. We need yeah. to change the electoral college, but our <laughs> system is set up that essentially won't allow us to change the electoral college. Right. The UN is set up in a way, you know, that yet yeah, should it be changed? Reasonable people would say yes, and easy, but it's never going to be because China and Russia are permanent are the members, and it's never, it's never going to happen that way. So, in a sense, I, you know, I hate to say it, but when a bully punches you and says they're going to fight, there, you have to show greater strength. And the, the point is, you know, Russia is economy the size of Portugal. It's now shown that it's it's army and military is not first world. They can't even muster an air force to take on, you know, again, these artillery pieces in Ukraine, for example. Um, we are the largest and most powerful economy in the history of the world. Our allies are the Europeans who are the second richest, you know, in Japanese in the, in the, in the world. Um, China is, is growing and is, is a threat to us, but they're sort of staying out in terms of direct support to the Russians. We need to be confident in ourselves and in our power. And when the bully attacks us and, and is clear is not going to stop, we have to be to summon the strength to show that bully that you shouldn't, you know, he shouldn't fight with the bear. Okay. I want to talk about NATO briefly and then China briefly, and then, uh, and then we'll end with, you know, what, what we need to be doing <laughs> and, what, and, what needs, and what needs to change. But uh, let, let's touch on NATO uh, quickly. So earlier in July, uh, it paved the way for Finland and Sweden to join um, the military alliance. So how significant is that? Um, how, how are you thinking about Finland and Sweden joining NATO? And, and is it going to impact the war in some way and, you know, U.S. security moving forward? But, but in particular, you know, how is, how, how is Putin going to read this and should we care? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a number of things there, too. That, you know, it's sort of a simple thing. It, it does pierce the narrative that, you know, NATO expansion was the reason for the war, you know, that somehow... NATO is a defensive alliance. The fact that it's, it's grown over the last 30 years is something that was that the Russians could not abide by, and therefore they would have to attack. Well, now they've seen Finland and Sweden join the alliance, and, and essentially the Russians are quiet about it. It goes back to the thing we just talked about is when you are stronger than them, the bully backs down. And so, you know, frankly, you know, I, I served in, in Finland, and the Finns, you know, in some ways, you can make the analogous argument to what's happening in Ukraine. In before World War II, Stalin's Soviet Union attacked Finland, and they wanted to take over chunks of Finland or all of Finland to be a sort of buffer in case the Nazis attacked or, or what have you. And you know, they sent this massive army against the Finns who didn't have tanks, aircraft, or anything. And you know, some reports that the Russians lost up to five hundred thousand men in, in like two months of fighting. And they did end up taking Eastern Karelia, the part of a part of Finland, uh, as a buffer. But but Finland maintained its independence. It maintained it became it was not a Soviet uh, vassal state. It was an independent state, and we've been able to sort of join the West and grow and grow a strong economy over time. And in some ways, you know, former Soviet leaders were like Vladimir Putin in the sense that they understand power. The, the Finns were willing to kill Russians and kill a lot of Russians, mm. and and the, the Soviets and the Russians respected that that's the long term but but they understood that you know these people are willing to fight and you know we will back down from that and in some ways ukraine is like that too you know the russians wanted to 
to, to take it over and the Ukrainians are willing to fight and, and kill Russians in the process, which will guarantee their survival as a, as a state over time. Putin has now backed off and said, okay, you have a survivalist state, but I'm gonna make sure you're a weak state that is so economically destroyed, people aren't gonna invest in it. It's gonna be, if it's not gonna be a vassal or owned by me outright, at least it's gonna be sort of a failed state in, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, so yes, Sweden and Finland joining, I think are a big thing. You know, Finland has a very strong history and a strong sort of military. Um, I think those are those are important things. The fact that NATO and the West again are showing showing strength and willingness to sort of back up against Russia, you know. So so there's a number of long-term things here that don't operate. So you know we often look at you know the day to day and and, and see negative things, but you know sanctions uh, in the long term. You know I just saw a thing today by an economist saying that you know. At, at best, if the war stopped today, it would take might take Russia ten years or so just to even get back to the economic place they were in before the war, um, and it's going to only get worse. Yes, they're making a lot of money by the price of oil, but there's less and less things to buy. They don't have the ability to, you know, they're they're they have two places that make cars. They're down ninety five percent in terms of the amount of stuff that they're pushing out. And, you know, they've stopped their building of tanks, the building of sort of modern weaponry and things that they can sell in the markets are, are, are falling. It, the, the Russian economy is going to be in, you know, weak, weakened for years and years. The strengthening of NATO over time is gonna make sure that, that, you know, that relationship between Russia, uh, an imperial and, and aggressive Russia is going to be in a, in a weaker place. So a lot of the things we're seeing are in the West's interest and in this, you know, in our thing, you know, over time, but of course, politics is a short-term thing. These same uh, Europeans and others that are that are supporting our administration that are, are are all trying to come together here, they understand if politics changes in a place like the United States at the at the midterms, if the the Democrats lose, or God help us if if Donald Trump wins again or somebody like Trump, this could change in a heartbeat. And you know, Vladimir Putin, who on every sort of level is a long term strategic loser, could find himself. A winner in this situation. China, briefly, since you mentioned it, um, and I get this is sort of a curveball, but only with the with the backdrop of the war in Ukraine and what China might be learning as a result. Is it is it just a matter of time before they move on Taiwan? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to portray myself as a, as a China expert. Sure. Um, and so you know, I've tried to sort of watch this and look at this like the rest of us. Um, personally, I think China made a real sort of strategic boo-boo here by, by, by investing and tying themselves so closely to Vladimir Putin. As I've told you before, Ron, is I, I you know, Vladimir Putin is losing the 21st century. Uh, Russia is a, is a weakening power. China is a growing power. China is winning the 21st century. So for China to tie themselves to this small economy that just causes chaos on the world stage has very little to offer the world in terms of things to buy, its economy, you know, its vision for the future. It, you know, yes, they both dislike, they have the same enemy in the United States. Um, yes, they're both dictators and they want to sort of be able to, to change the rules of the game to their benefit. But China doesn't want to 
sort of destroy the United States in the sense that they need the United States as markets, as money, to, as they grow. They don't want to destroy the system because the system's working for them. They're, they're moving to a place where they'll be the most powerful economy in the world. They don't want right. to overturn the, the sort of the world order because it's working for them, whereas the Russians, it's not working for them. So chaos and destruction and dog-eat-dog is is good for them. So it was surprising to me that the, the Chinese were willing to throw their lot in so much with Vladimir Putin. I didn't see the sort of long-term strategic mm. benefit of that. Now, okay. China has not, you know, gone in full hog. They're not like providing weaponry and, you know, they're not trying to, to you know, they're providing sort of verbal, <laughs> emotional yeah. support um, <laughs> to that. So yeah, Taiwan, that's a good question. Now, you know, it is, the Chinese have made it clear for a long, long time and they see this as and existential is the wrong term, but as a key um, goal of theirs, they've always seen uh, Taiwan as part as part of a of China, and, and almost you know have always said it's a matter of when, not if. And so you could have made the argument early on that there's that, you know the West is focused on Russia, Europe is fighting. This might be a, a good time to finally you know move in while while we're distracted. But on the other hand, there's another lesson to be learned here, too, is Vladimir Putin was convinced he had this reformed and, and, and military, which is just sort of ready to go and seize Kiev in a couple of days. Yeah. And his spetsnaz would be, you know, walking around the halls of power in Kiev and, and, and these type of things. And it's turned out not to be the case that, you know, uh, uh, an enemy that you're fighting that's willing to fight back, you know, even if they don't have a powerful army can be quite you know, hard to, hard to defeat. And so China could be learning the other lesson saying, Hey, listen, you know, this is a, yeah. you know, a fortified Island with first world military hardware. That's, you know, hundred miles across the ocean. Maybe it's not so easy to defeat as we thought it would be. So it's not clear to me and, and they're, you know, China experts would probably have a better take on this, but, you know, they could be t- taking the lesson here that, uh, you know, we we have not used our military. You know, it is not a military that, you know, if I'm the leader of China, that I have confidence that is, as professionals, I think it is. My generals are telling me it's great, but Putin's generals were telling him it was great too, and it turned out not to be the case. So so am I willing to roll the dice and gamble and find out, uh-oh, I, I'm in the same position that Vladimir Putin is. So hasn't been tested. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I just look at Hong Kong and think, well, they're not going to stop when they're done with Hong Kong. And... I don't know, but yeah, it, and Hong Kong just makes me so sad. I love love that city. But I know I, it's very it's very sad, and this is another thing. You know, I, I get frustrated with American domestic politics in terms of uh, of allowing immigrants into the country. I mean, there are such talented people in Hong Kong, yeah, and and, yeah. and to have you know those people move to the United States would would help our country, would help our economy, would help fill critical jobs, or you know, inventors or. Yeah. incredible commercial yeah so i mean we should just always not a time gates, to shut like, ourselves off from yeah. the, from the right, world, you know? right 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 let's wrap with uh some of the things that uh that that you're watching vis-a-vis the war um how the united states what what we should be doing to support ukraine and you know, how Americans need to understand that the needs are going to change as the fighting shifts. And, um, and, you know, where, where do you, if you had to, you know, if, if you were a betting man, how, how would you have, how would you forecast the, uh, the, the, you know, next six months or so 
or even you know where do you think this nets out um if if it does in the in the foreseeable future right maybe it just it becomes a protracted thing that that goes on for years i don't know how do you see this in in most most likely how do you see this ending yeah, the one thing I learned from working at CIA is sort of pre, you know predicting the future is is sort of a fool's game. So because ah, you know okay. things <laughs> things can okay. change and, and all those kind of things, uh, for sure. But but you know a few things to to look at. Like first, you know Vladimir Putin has told his people, you know, in his recent speeches, that they've weathered the sanctions. That you know the West is trying to destroy us economically. We are more resilient. It's working in our benefit. You know, don't worry about it. That's a that's quite a gamble because it appears that you know, yes, they weathered the first sort of round of sanctions, but these things work slowly. Their economy, their sort of modern economy, is going to be devastated over time, and 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 the impacts for locals is going to be felt increasingly in the future. But if you've already told the people that we weathered them and, and the economy continues to go down, this is a potential sort of danger that he has to worry about and, and that he's created, as opposed to telling the people, this is going to be hard, we need to pull together, like we did in World War II or what have you. The other thing I'm looking at on the on sort of the battlefield is, you know, despite the benefits the Russians have of having a massive army and having the country right next door and using their advantages of artillery and, you know, number of people and stuff, there's also a lot of signs that they have a real tough time filling in behind that that their army is is suffering uh they're having a tough time getting new recruits or having to pay quite a bit of money to get people to join the military um they're using incredibly more and old-fashioned weapons they pulled these old you know 60 year old tanks world war ii tanks out of mothballs to try to send them in the, you know many of these strikes into central ukraine are, are are weapons that aren't even designed for the purpose that they're hitting and so are they and are they going to be able to, with the economy and the sanctions, you know, continue to build new weaponry, build new artillery things? And so, so time, he's playing, he being Vladimir Putin is playing the sense that time is on his side, the West will show weakness. But, but time isn't necessarily on his side either. His economy is going to continue to, to suffer. It's going to be harder and harder for them to sort of restock more and more bodies, you know, it's hard again if you're if you're a dictator. You know, yes, you control things, um, but as time goes, we saw they were, you know they were also dictators in the Soviet Union and the and the war in Afghanistan as the body bags started to come home caused eventually, you know, political frictions that led to the end of the Soviet Union, and so there's a lot of things for Vladimir Putin to, to worry about here, and you know, in some internal things, it, it's sort of opaque to us because he's closed it off and hidden that part of the world, and so I'll be looking. Yeah, can the Russians really? follow up on yes they can destroy a lot of shit with this artillery can they really follow up on that and and even if they do if they take over these places and call them people's republic and give out passports to these like they did in crimea and, and the other parts of the donbass or you know it seems to me that's going to be an economic drain on the system that that already is having enough economic problems so there so i don't think long-term prospects are necessarily in vladimir putin's but he, but the one thing again, it goes back to that mentality, sort of this Russian mentality, street thug mentality, is like, even if I'm losing or if I'm suffering, if you're suffering more, that's still, I'll, I'll consider that a victory. And so, um, you know, he, he doesn't care so much about Russians dying, and he is trying. You know, he's shown so far that he's willing to sort of 
go for the long term, but but there's going to be indicators that suggest that may make it harder for him over time. Okay. Um, John, I'd love to have you back again to talk more about this as it as it evolves. Uh, but in the meantime, where can everybody find you popping off on the internet? <laughs> I'm hiding at home. There's no way to find me. But, I, but I'm on Twitter at, at John underscore Cypher. I've been getting beat up lately by the sort of the left wing people. So I'm sort of you know a little. I'm a little. I'm a little hastened right now. But I'll I'll come back around. <laughs> I made a comment when John Bolton uh, made the comment about how he he is crafted a number of coups around the world it's difficult you know i i sort of called him on it you know he's full of shit he's not it isn't like it's not how the system works there's not guys in the white house you know crafting coups and pulling them off i mean but of course then everybody attacked me well it's because you're the cia and you do coups and you know like oh shit but it was hilarious when he was like you know let me tell you coming from a coup plotter really really I'm sure in not, his wet, not, in not his here. Wet. He goes, not here, of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, he's, he's a, a bit of a nut job in, in the sense that, you know, he's, you know, he never, yeah. He's someone who's always wants to use violence and all these sort of tools. And oftentimes the professionals are sort of pushed back and held it against, you know, and, and, and just like a lot of it we're seeing now with the January 6th committee and stuff is the stuff that the Trump people wanted to do is often just, crazy and the fact that they were incompetent sort of helped helped us that they were unable to sort of follow through on the things that they wanted to do because they didn't know how to and they didn't know how to work the the bureaucracy and the system and professionals you know in the, in the defense department and other in the fbi and other places sort of back in the justice department um yeah i don't know if that happens again if if trump I mean, got again, because if they had known yeah, yeah, they had been a little bit more camp competent yeah 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 uh, all right. Uh, Slava Ukraini. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> I'll be eager to hear more about your trip and I'll, I'll listen yeah, for that. A lot, lot more coming on that front for sure. John, it's great to see you. Great to be with you. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.